Today's reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, page, on, page 834 of the Pew Bible. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. May God bless this reading to us today. Uh, let me come um, now to a time where we open God's word. Uh, we're in Luke's gospel and we're going to pray. Let's do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come now before your word, would you again humble us and remind us that um, we think our thoughts about you after you, after the way that you have revealed yourself and shown yourself to be. You don't leave us to make these things up and just to pretend that we understand, but you are the God who has breathed out a living word and we come before it this morning and we do want to come humbly and ask, Lord, that you would use this word to guide us, Lord, to correct us, perhaps where we've got wrong thoughts, uh, to encourage us, Lord, where we've been holding on to the truth but it's been tough. Or, Lord, where we've got some things right, some things out of place, Lord, would you redirect us? And would you grow in us a conviction by your word and spirit that you are the true God who speaks true truth into this world? And so, Heavenly Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I knew it at the time. I even said in my head, Leon, remember the last time? And how you felt? how sick you felt, and I did remember, it wasn't that long ago, but it was, it was right there and weirdly and perversely irresistible. The thought came, as it always does, and the thought this time was specific, maybe this time it'll be beautiful. Maybe this time I won't regret it. Maybe there won't be the shame and the disappointment. And, and it wasn't like I'd gone looking for it. 
I'd found myself on Friday afternoon, I'd walked out through that door, I was going down through the corridor and the same temptation gripped me as it does every time that I take away last week's flowers and put them in the green recycling bin out that door. And I wonder if you want to know what the temptation is. The temptation is, smell the water. (laughs) For the longest time, I've had a powerful reaction to the smell of stale flower water. A few weeks ago, this is the last time that was going through my head and I was remembering, my daughter came down with a bouquet of ballet flowers that had lasted for weeks and weeks. We got our money's worth out of those flowers. And I've got to tell you, I deeply regretted allowing the stench of that stale water be drawn down deeply into my nasal cavity. Because for about five minutes in the backyard, I could not stop gagging. Just like one of those deep, you know, soulful gags. And even when I couldn't smell it any longer, just the, the memory of the thought of the smell was enough to have me start gagging all over again. And I know there's a danger in a room like this talking about gagging and imitating it. I've made that mistake only a few weeks ago. Like dogs returning to their vomit, remember? (laughs) And so Friday just gone, I had the desire to do the good and not smell the water, but I could not carry it out. For I did not do the good that I wanted to do, but the evil that I did not want to do, this I keep on doing. I keep on smelling the water and once again, retching all the way to the green bin. (laughs) Now, faced with what is really a trivial temptation like that, or the greater temptations of my life, I hear myself as a repeat offender agreeing with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched person I am, and who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Temptation. Or I I can actually hear the lyrics of that crowded house song that some of you might remember if you're kind of close to my age. Into temptation. The guilty get no sleep. In the last slow hours of mourning, experience is cheap and I should have listened to the warning. But the cradle is soft and warm. Into temptation. Knowing full well that the earth will rebel. Into your wide open arms, no way to break this spell. You know the experience of temptation, right? Actually, bear in mind, the last line of that lyric that I just read isn't true, by the way. No way to break this spell. And it is certainly not true in the text that was just read for us a moment ago. For Jesus, led into the wilderness, led into temptation, does not succumb. And as you can see in the way that I've started, I've got no intention of hiding today's theme away. For into temptation we go. And I want to suggest that there's no hiding that this is a universal human issue. You all know what temptation is. You've all experienced it probably more than once. And if it's so common and it seems so victimless and it seems just, well, is it really such an issue? Well, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And in fact, God's word wants to tell us, yes, it's an issue. And in Luke's biography of Jesus, it's the next thing that he wants us to see and us to understand in this astonishing man that he's been introducing us to. You remember that Luke's been telling us Jesus' story. He's the biographer and he is constantly making an astonishing claim 
that Jesus is the Son of God. If you reflect back over the last few weeks, you'll remember that we heard it in the miraculous virgin birth narrative. Here is the one that comes from, from divine origin, the Son of God. We heard it when we met Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple and where he speaks of being in his Father's house. We heard it and we saw it at Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice is heard from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. And strangely to our ears, last week we heard it in the genealogy that traced an ancestral line right back to its origin saying that Jesus, this one that you see before you now, the son of God, the son of Adam. And now in chapter 4, there's another testimony that adds voice and adds song like Simeon's, like Anna's, like the virgin birth, like all those things that have come in Luke's gospel so far. And it goes further to show us not only that Jesus is the Son of God, and not only does he have the correct pedigree, but that he is perfect as the Son of God. In the face of temptation, in the strongest face of temptation, he is without sin. And Luke sets this early in his biographies because he is establishing for us that he will be the one who is perfect as the sacrifice to come, the sacrifice for sin, the one without sin, yet knows it. And so Luke adds this new voice, a voice that is going to test. In fact, it's the voice of evil testing the Son of God and testing that claim. So Luke chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, astonishingly, that God directs him into this wilderness where for 40 days he is tempted by the devil. And in the face of that tempting, he demonstrates himself consistently three times over to be the perfect, obedient Son of God. Of course, temptation in our lives is a powerful force. And I don't know the specifics of how it works in your life and what those areas are, but we face it daily, constantly. And as we look at it in this instance, it helps us watch Jesus as he faces and conquers temptation. And not only does it show us something about Jesus and his character, it also shows us how temptation works and how it might be resisted. And I wonder, as we read this earlier, did it sound a little bit familiar? It would have to Jesus' original hearers. As they mentioned that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the word wilderness would have been one of those trigger words. Because the wilderness is this important motif all the way through the Old Testament, isn't it? Most importantly, it is the place that God directs the Israelites when they are taken out of slavery into the promised land. They will sojourn, they will journey through the wilderness for a period of 40 years. And all of a sudden that 40 is a trigger again, isn't it? And it's no coincidence that the 40 years of wilderness wanderings and the 40 days of Jesus' temptations echo one another. And then you notice Luke mentioning that Jesus has been fasting. And it's another trigger word, isn't it? Wilderness 40 fasting. Except not fasting in the wilderness narratives of Israel. They're just starving, hungry. 
And of course, in this narrative, Luke tells us that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and at the end of that, he's hungry. And you kind of think, that is an understatement, surely. And yet you don't sense it on Jesus' lips. He doesn't tell you how hungry he is. But if you were in Israel wandering around the deserts, it didn't take 40 years or even 40 days. They start whinging right off the... Uh, I was going to say right off the boat. Right... Uh, would have been a different thing if they got off the boat. They right out of the right out of the river, right out of the sea. They wander and they complain, and God miraculously provides for them manna in the desert, manna in the wilderness, food in the desert wilderness place. But of course, then they get the manna, and then they get sick of that, and they start whinging and complaining about that. Oh, they've been delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. They haven't deserved it. They've been given this incredible act of grace and released. And not only that, they're not going to starve to death in the desert, but the manna just gets boring, doesn't it? And so they whinge and complain. They want to eat leeks and onions by the side of the Nile. And yet in this story, it's just so different. Couldn't be more different. Jesus fasting intentionally, deliberately going without food. And rather than whinging about being hungry or questioning God and his care for him, Jesus is in an act of worship. He's praying. He's investing time with his father in that place and trusting in him to provide for him in his timing. And in fact, that's exactly what you see happening at the end of this story. Ministered to and attended to. But they're focused on this act of worship. He's not tempted to turn stones into bread. He refuses to put God's will before his own. It's interesting because in that ancient story of Israel, when they are left without Moses, when he goes up Mount Sinai, interestingly, he goes up there for 40 days, they immediately, those that are at the bottom of the mountain, well, they begin worshipping too. But they fashion an idol in the shape of an Egyptian deity, a golden calf, and that's what they worship. Even though they've got this God who's led them and fed them and now they'll worship something that their own hands have made. But Jesus, on the other hand, when tempted, does not bow down to the temptation. In fact, resists the devil even when he's offered the whole world. But he'll give only his worship to his father. Israel in Exodus 17 questions whether or not God is with them because they had no water to drink. Surely God's not with us. He's brought us out of here to die in the wilderness. But Jesus, when tempted to take things into his own hand or to force God to provide, resists. When tempted to throw himself off the temple and force God to save him, instead trusts God without calling on his assistance or needing a sign. See, what you discover is you read the story that Luke tells of Jesus in the wilderness in the face of temptation is so vastly different to Israel's. In fact, Israel fails in almost every way to be what God required. And yet Luke shows us that Jesus fulfills in every way what God desires perfectly. And then when you look down and actually think about these temptations, as we're going to do for a moment, you you learn a lot about the nature of temptation and the way that Satan works in this world. And also you learn a lot about our Saviour. So as we understand the ways that Jesus defeats temptation and this enemy, there's an invitation to follow his lead and to live in the light of that. 
See, when you looked at the text in verse 3, the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. And that, that first temptation was for Jesus to question God's provision and care. Here you are, you're hungry, does he care? Well, if he does, then just call the stones to bread. Do you have that capacity, this creation capacity? Meet your own need in your own power. And what's interesting in that is that this isn't a temptation that's calling on Jesus to be strong so much as it's calling on Jesus to be independent. And you realise in this that Satan is incredibly subtle. He tempts Jesus to do things in his own timing and not wait for God, to just do the things that fix the problem at hand. I wonder if that sounds familiar. I wonder if you're ever tempted to take matters into your own hands, ever tempted to help God out and just get it done, instead of waiting upon the Lord. And you notice here that Satan knows Jesus' weakness right at that moment and points right there. It's his hunger. It's 40 days without food. And he pounces on it. And what do you see? You see Jesus wait upon the Lord. You see that in that space, he depends on God's word. Man shall not live on bread alone. I've got something I can rely on that is bigger than just satiating my hunger right now. Instead, I'll wait upon God's deliverance and depend on him. I not be independent, but dependent. The the second temptation that comes in verse 5 is a temptation for Jesus to put himself in God's place, to enthrone himself. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Imagine that. There it is. You can have all of this. I have this power. You can be yours. Of course, there's a caveat to that. You'll need to worship me and it will all be yours. And of course, it raises questions as to whether or not Satan can give that kind of authority. But there it is before Jesus. Do you want it? You can have it. You can take the power. Satan's desire there is really actually to receive the worship that only God deserves And so again, with great subtlety, he doesn't tell Jesus not to worship God or depend on God. He just gives Jesus an easier way to get to where he's going to get to anyway. Will Jesus have control of all the kingdoms of the world? And we say, yes. In fact, the the, the constant testimony of God's word is that he is the king of all kingdoms. He's the Lord above all lords. Yes, yes, he will. And what Satan does here is to tell Jesus... As long as the end goal is the same, what does it matter? Can't the ends just justify the means? So you can have all the kingdoms of the world. But according to God's plan, Jesus would have to wait. And in that time of waiting, he will suffer greatly. In fact, in order for him to be the king over all things, it will require a dependence on God and a trusting in God to actually bring about an even greater salvation that he will be the one who will deal with temptation's full result of sin and death. But that will only come if he waits. But with Satan's plan, it's instant gratification. And often our temptations are exactly the same. We want it now. But notice this extraordinary twist. God's pattern is to start with suffering 
and end with glory. Satan's pattern is to start with glory that will end in suffering. And so Satan tries that selfish tactic that does not work on Jesus, but often works on us, where we'll sacrifice the eternal for the temporary. And the reminder from this to us is then to trust God, the God who is eternal, who knows us and how he's made us, in the midst of whatever that trial or temptation is, to hold fast to him and to not take matters into our own hands and to realise that that might mean delaying gratification. It might mean suffering. It might mean going without. In fact, Jesus will later invite his followers to take up their cross and follow him. And when we face difficult times in our lives, we're not supposed to run from them or take matters into our homes, but to depend on God. And often God has allowed us to face these to make us stronger. We think about this often, but God's greatest desire is not our comfort, but our character transformation to make us more like his son. In Romans 5, Paul says, Not only is this so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's Paul saying? He's saying, well, you you, you sow suffering and you reap perseverance sometimes. You sow perseverance and you reap character. You sow character, you reap hope. And when you sowed hope, it does not reap shame because God has loved us and actually equipped us and empowered us, as we'll see in a moment. But come to the third temptation. It's in verse 9. The devil leads Jesus to Jerusalem and has him stand on the highest point of the temple. And then he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written. And now he quotes God's word to him. He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. It's it's lovely, isn't it? Satan cares, it seems. And they will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But he doesn't care at all. It's a devious trap because this last temptation where Jesus is tempted to throw himself off the peak of the temple is is to see if God would truly be powerful and truly loving. Will he protect his son? And he tries literally the oldest trick in the book and tempts Jesus in the same way that he tempted Adam and Eve and says, this is what God says? And did God really not say? But when Satan quotes God, he always twists his word. He's a deceiver and a liar at heart. And he pulls one piece of scripture out and tries to use it. And that'll be a danger for us sometimes as we justify our behaviour or why we've acted a certain way that we have. But the picture here is one who takes scripture and matches it against scripture. Jesus replies, no, no, no. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test and that's what you're doing. Oh yes, God will indeed carefully guide me. He will lift me up. He will not have it that I will be struck against the stone and destroyed. No, no, but I will not put my God to the test either. He takes scripture and he uses it wisely in its context and understands it. And it's a great model for us as we think about the word of God as a powerful instrument and tool in our lives. The frightening thing in this, of course, is that Satan quotes scripture. He knows it. And he tries to get Jesus 
to trip over it. But Jesus knows the word better. In fact, he is the word. And the answer comes. And Jesus will not follow Satan's lead. He has the instruction, the very words of God to follow. And he knows that God has not asked him to engage in such a, temp- such a test. And he resists. And exactly what the New Testament tells us, you resist the devil and he flees from you and that's what happens in verse 13. He leaves. Well, at least he leaves until an opportune time. And what's that opportune time going to be? Well, never will Jesus succumb to the temptation, but there'll be a time when Satan looks like he wins. When he looks like he has great victory and the Son of God, this one who has come perfect, dies the sinner's death. In fact, bears the sin of all the world. But demonstrates that he has power over sin and death and Satan's defeat. Not only does he beat him in the wilderness, he beats him by his death, by that perfect sacrifice. He is the one who deals with the fruit of our temptation and takes our sin upon himself. So are you tempted? Well, it's common, it's universal, isn't it? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to everyone. And then he immediately goes on to say, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Which is great hope today, isn't it? I mean, you see it for Jesus, the the capacity to endure such incredible temptation that his reliance upon prayer and the spirit that is with him and guiding him, his dependence on the character of God and ultimately his dependence on God's word in the space of temptation. And he endures. And he shows us a model of what it might look like to face our temptations. But, but of course, we also recognise that we succumb, that there is no one righteous, not even one, that, that all, in fact, sin, all of us succumb to temptation. And here we realise the incredible truth of what Paul was saying. There is one way that God has provided for us to endure both sin and temptation, and that is by a reliance upon the one who took our sin for us and intercedes for us and now dwells within us. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? That the very one that would be our accuser is our defender. Interceding at the right hand of God is the one who knows what it is that we are tempted by. And whilst he might not know the experience of sin, he knows what it is to bear the penalty of sin. And he says, I endured this that you might receive life. And then I wonder as we close right now, that does this not also show you something powerful about who Jesus is? This one that Luke has been constantly introducing us to as the Son of God. Do you see him here in his perfection? That how easy it would have been, how excusable to add some bread or to have demonstrated God's power and and yet resist, resist, resist. And why? because it would need a perfect sacrifice so that we might endure our sin and have it dealt with. 
And I wonder if we have attempted not to believe in this perfect one and that perfect sacrifice. If we're fooled to thinking that it will be our goodness and our sinlessness, our resistance to temptation that would somehow impress God. But what this text and what this book shows us is that it is the perfection of this one who knew sin but was not taken into sin, who became sin for us that we might receive his righteousness, his perfection gifted to us. And then we're invited to follow in his footsteps. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are visited often by a thought to do that which we know is not pleasing to you, to do the wrong, or to not do the good, to walk away and left those things that you would have us do and to leave them undone. We realise, Lord, the power of temptation. And the grip that it has and the connection it has to sin within us. And we ask, us, we ask Lord, that you would guide us in a similar way that we see our Saviour being empowered in the wilderness. That we are never alone. That you are with us. And that your word abides in us. And Lord, we'd ask that we might know it and defend against the temptations as they come. But Lord, where we have succumbed, we need one who is perfect. And we thank you that as we come to Luke 4, we've met him once again, the perfect son of God. And Lord, where we are tempted not to trust and tempted not to believe, to walk away from the greatest resource that you have given to this world, Lord, would you draw us back and have us hold fast to the one who is our Lord and our Saviour, the one who is the very Son of God. And we ask for your empowerment and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.